Good morning. My name is Chris. I'm one of the elders here at the church and also the one of the pastors. And so glad that you're here today. If you're visiting with us, we are a spiritual family and we welcome you and we pray that the Lord would minister to your heart, would encourage you, bring you into a place of experiencing him more fully. Um, And we welcome you to be a part of our church family if that's what the Lord so leads. We're very grateful for what God is doing among us. We have a bit of a kind of a renewal revival going on here with our church. A lot of people meeting Jesus Getting baptized two weeks from today, we'll have another baptism Sunday. Seven of us will be baptized uh, going into the waters and uh, coming out, having been raised with Christ Jesus. Baptism is a very important piece for us, so uh, we'll celebrate with all of them in two weeks. If you are being baptized today, remember that right after the service, you can gather in my office for uh, the filming of your testimony so we can have that ready. So Christmas is such a joyous time of the year. Um, it's my favorite time of the year. Um, the incarnation, we, we celebrate his coming, Jesus coming, God sending his son. But Advent, uh, which means arrival or appearing, is a little more nuanced than just what we might think of with Christmas. Theologian Chad Bird writes, Advent is the season of the church's flat tire. The world will go on barreling down the freeway, racing like madmen to Christmas. But we are forced to stop, be delayed, wait. Advent reminds us to cool our jets just a little, to uh, be still. And to consider the darkness of a weary world and experience, even if it's just for a few weeks, the longing of those 400 long, silent years before the birth of Christ. Yes, God had promised consolation, redemption, restoration. He promised to write his law on their hearts to make with them a new covenant but for 400 years after the prophet Malachi had written the words of God that given, were given to him, from that point on, for 400 years, there was nothing. Silence. Waiting. And when the Messiah did come, he didn't look like they thought he'd look, and he didn't do what they thought he'd do, and it didn't work out like they thought it would. Probably Cleopas and his companion, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, summed up best the disappointment that all the disciples had when they said, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. We had hoped he was the one. I bet all of us have said something like that at one time or another. We had hoped. We had hoped for that promotion. We had hoped the money would last. We had hoped it wasn't cancer. We had hoped to be married by now. We had hoped she was pregnant. We had hoped they would come home. A lot of people think that the opposite of hope is despair, and it certainly can be. But for the most part, the struggle 
is not full-on despair, but just disappointment, being let down, things not going the way you thought they would go. Sociologists have described disappointment as one of the most dominant emotions of the human psyche, part of which comes from what they call the myth of progress. And it's where we expect our life, if it could be graphed out, would always be to the right and ascending. Like we would always be on the rise and there'd never be a dip. A lot of Christians are susceptible to this sort of mindset. John Mark Comer says that a lot of Christians believe the gospel of upward mobility. Like my life will just keep getting better and better. But that doesn't really line up with what we even looked at last week when we were reminded of Paul's admonition to the church in Philippi that we were to have the same mind that was in Christ Jesus, who, though was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be clung to or grasped, but rather he condescended. He lowered, he emptied himself. He became as nothing taking on the form of a servant and becoming obedient to his father's wishes, all because he was so close to the father, not needing anything anyone else would give him, but becoming obedient to the point of dying on the cross. The real life that matters is promised and only found in Jesus. And he made it very clear that trouble-free life in this world is not on the menu. It's not going to always go the way we had hoped it would go. And we're going to find times when we think we didn't sign up for this. And yet we did. But in that disappointment, in that time of, of being let down, of being maybe even disillusioned or possibly even in despair, the promise of Jesus is that he is always with you. That he will never leave nor forsake you. And he says, though you will have trouble in this world, take heart, for I have overcome the world. His promise is not problem-free life. His promise is his very presence with you. When we think of hope, we we have to make sure that we've moved past that, that humanized idea of wishful thinking. Like when we hope it snows on Christmas, or we hope our football team gets put in the college football playoffs. (laughs) Whichever team that might be. They've been sitting on the edge of their seats waiting for me to say something. Now you can relax. And our hope has to be more than positive vibes or rose-colored optimism or calculated guesses. Biblical hope is based on a person, which makes, a, makes it different than just being optimistic. Optimism is just choosing to think that it's all going to work out. No matter what the circumstances, it'll work out. But biblical hope isn't based or focused on circumstances. In fact, hopeful people in the Bible often recognize there's no evidence things will get better, at least not in their life. 
And yet, against all hope, they hoped. Like the prophet Hosea, who lived in a very dark time of Israel's history, where many empires were oppressing them, and yet he chose to hope and put his hope in God. He said this, God will make the valley of Achor, which means trouble, a door of hope. He'll take the very thing that you see as everything against you and make it the gateway to the hope that he promises you. And just like God did when he brought Israel out of Egypt, he redeemed his people in the days of Exodus because he did it once. It means that he will do it again because God is a covenant-keeping God. So it's God's past faithfulness that motivates our hope for the future. Whenever you're in a bleak, dark time, my strongest encouragement to you is to recall to yourself what God has done. Look at how he has been faithful in your life. Recall, say it out loud, write it down, recite it, remember it, remember it, memorize it, what God has done for me. And it will help you see the future with hope. You look forward by looking back. And then trusting in nothing other than God's character, that he is who he says he is, and he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. It's like David who wrote, and now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. In the New Testament, the disciples believed that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection was God's surprising response to our slavery to evil and death. He gave an answer for what our dilemma was. The empty tomb opened up to them a new doorway of hope. And now, that's why the Apostle Peter could say, and these verses have already been read, James and the readings before for Advent, so many of what I had drawn out independent from them was what they shared with us as well. But Peter said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And the Apostle Paul said, we celebrate in hope the glory of God. And not only this, but we also celebrate in our tribulations. What? Wait a minute. Back it up. Did he just say we celebrate in our tribulations? Yeah. Because we've celebrated in the hope of his glory. And we know, as he says, that tribulation brings about in us a perseverance, a stamina, an ability to persevere. And perseverance gives us proven character. And proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. A hope that does not disappoint. That is so much more than circumstantial or positive vibes. That's a hope that will sustain you. You know, a lot of people think that Jeremiah in the Old Testament was the weeping prophet and probably with good reason. He grieved over Israel's sin. He was uh, 
grieved over their unwillingness to repent. He, he warned them, and yet their warning, his warnings went unheeded. His message was mostly gloomy, and he saw little fruit from his ministry. At one point, he even felt that God had deceived him, had tricked him to get him to say all these things. But he still was faithful in what God had called him to do. But to me, Jeremiah is not so much the weeping prophet as he is the prophet of hope. Even as he was misunderstood and persecuted and falsely accused and put into prison and labeled and derided, he proclaimed some of the most hopeful words that you will find in the Hebrew Bible. Maybe one of the most quoted verses that we all love to quote is Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. I bet you have that on a coffee mug somewhere or a bumper sticker or probably highlighted in your Bible. Here's the thing. In the context of when that scripture, that verse was given, God promised that they would actually be in exile for 70 years. It would not go the way they thought. They would be judged for their sin. They would be led into captivity and placed into exile. And they would pay the price for their rebellion. And in the middle of that, Jesus, God says, I know the plans I have for you, though. It's a long vision. You may be there 70 years, but I have for you a future. And I have for you hope. Chapters 31, 30, 31, 32, and 33 are actually often called the book of consolation or simply just the book of hope. Right in the middle of all of this judgment and all of this that is going to happen to them, he is speaking the most hopeful things to them. And maybe one of the most intriguing things in those four chapters is found in chapter 32 when God embeds in the middle of this hope-filled passage an instruction to Jeremiah to do something that is just out of the ordinary. He tells him to invest in real estate. <laughs> and you're like, what? What are you talking about? Well, let's read about it. Jeremiah 32.6. Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came to me. Behold, Hanamel, the son of Shalem, your uncle, will come to you and say, Buy my field that is in Anathoth, for the right of redemption by purchase is yours. And then Hanamel, my cousin, came to me in the court of the guard. You see, Jeremiah is locked up in the court of the guard. He's in prison. They are being besieged as a city. The Babylonian army is outside the walls. They are sieging this city. Jeremiah has promised to Zedekiah the king, you're going to lose. The city is going down. They will take us into captivity. And Zedekiah didn't like what he has to say. Understandably so. So he puts him in prison. And it's in that context that this relative of his shows up and said, hey, got some money to buy the field? He said to me, buy my field that is at Anathoth in the land of Benjamin for the right of possession and redemption is yours. Buy it for yourself. And I, Jeremiah says, and then I knew this was the word of the Lord. Buying a field in the midst of the circumstances he found himself was a deliberate act of hope, a defiant act of hope. 
Because buying a field while Jerusalem is besieged by the Babylonian army made no sense at all. Why would he do that? G.K. Chesterton said, as long as matters are really hopeful, hope is mere flattery or platitude. It is only when everything is hopeless that hope begins to be a strength at all. Like all the Christian virtues, it is as unreasonable as it is indispensable. God was planting seeds of hope in a field picked over by hopelessness. And he told Jeremiah, you go make a spectacle of this. Make sure everybody knows that you're buying this field. You write up the deeds, you weigh out the silver, you gather the witnesses, just like what the customs would be. And then you take that paperwork that you signed and you put it in a jar and bury it for safekeeping because one day somebody's going to read it and know that prophet lived with hope. Eugene Peterson, his book, Run with the Horses, says what we are calling hoping or what we call hoping is often only wishing. We want things we think are impossible, but we have better sense than to spend any money or commit our lives to them. Biblical hope, though, is an act, like buying a field in Anathoth. Hope acts on the conviction that God will complete the work that he has begun, even when the appearances, especially when the appearances, oppose it. That's hope. True hope will cause you to put your money where your mouth is. True hope will make you buy into what you say you believe. And by purchasing this field at Anathoth, right as Jerusalem was being sacked and most of Israel would be led into captivity, Jeremiah was declaring that his hope is in God. That the eternal one who has promised it, who has made it, will also return and restore it. For that which is being destroyed, God will bring back to life. Towards the end of the book, on this book of hope, chapters 30, 31, 32, 33, Jeremiah speaks a messianic prophecy that's already been alluded to in our Advent readings. And it's full of hope. It's full of hope in action and in tone. He says, Jeremiah 33, 14, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David. And he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. The version that was read earlier, the Lord is our righteous Savior. What is Jeremiah's hope? His hope is in a vision of better days. Promised not by wishful thinking, but promised by the eternal God. Something we find promised throughout the Bible. And our vision for a better future is is not based on wishful thinking, positive vibes, statistical trends. Our hope is based on the one who has promised. 
Hope is not wrapped up in a season or a program, in possessions we might acquire or prestige we might have. Hope is wrapped up in a person, and that person's name is Jesus Christ, the righteous branch who sprang up from the root of Jesse, sprang up for David, his father, Jesus, the Lord, our righteousness, our righteous Savior. And it means that Jesus is going to make everything right. Even though we didn't do it right, he will make it right and keep it right all of the time. And that is something worth putting your hope in. So let me conclude this morning before we gather at the table to remember the Lord's sacrifice made for us. How are you today? Do you find yourself in the midst of disappointment? Are you disillusioned today? Are you despairing? Are you hopeless? Has life that you didn't sign up for taken more out of you than you could realize? Do you find yourself reeling? Exhausted. Do you often hear yourself saying, I had hoped it would be different. I really hoped it would be different. Is your hope centered in the person of Jesus, the righteous branch, or is it futilely tied to something else? And as you have grown in your following of Jesus, if you are a follower of Jesus, has your hope increased or has it been diminished? And if you're not a follower of Jesus, do you think you could have the possibility of hoping again? Do you think it's worth seeing if Jesus, who is promised to be full of hope, could actually instill in you hope? And how has hope changed the way you live your life? How would you like for hope to change the way you live your life? What are you willing to risk because of who Jesus is and what he has done? What field has he asked you to buy to prove that your hope is in something beyond your circumstances? It's in the one who promised. As we walk through this season of Advent, a season of waiting, of flat tires, of not speeding towards the 25th, but sitting in it for a while, Waiting, being still, pondering the more serious things of what God is after. As we wait and long and rejoice and hope, I hope that we will ask ourselves these questions and more because I believe it's in asking the questions that we will hear Jesus giving the answer. And where Jesus will walk in with us closely, coming up close, just like he did those two disciples on the road to Emmaus who said, we had hoped. We had hoped it would be different. Jesus is walking next to you. And when you say, I had hoped it was different, he is there to bring revelation and to fill you with hope, to infuse you with hope, where he makes your valley of acor a doorway of hope.
May that be our pursuit during this Advent season this year. Amen. This morning, we're going to gather at the Lord's table. And I'd like to ask those that are serving today communion, if they would go ahead and come and get into their place, getting the trays and being ready. I will say this, uh, this table today is the Lord's table. It is not our church's table. It's the Lord's table. And so if you are in Christ, you belong at this table. In fact, I had this picture, Don and I were talking this morning, I had this picture of Jesus being the host of this meal. And I thought to myself the times that Ed and Hermania have invited us over to eat at their house during Christmas time. They're wonderful hosts. Her house is always decorated to the nines. And it's such a beautiful experience and a wonderful meal. And I feel so welcomed. And that was the mental picture I got today that Jesus is hosting for us this meal. He's inviting you to his table. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We're going to pray for the bread and for the cup. And after we do that, I'd invite you to come and gather here at one of these five stations in groups of eight, ten, whatever the group will hold. And we'll share together the bread that was given for us and the cup of his blood that was shed for us. God, when we come to your table, we lay down us. We lay down our preferences, our prejudices, our privileges, our disappointments, anything that we might hold against you, and we receive the bread of life that will heal us, mature us, sustain us. We thank you for the life that comes to us through your table. And I pray that we get the full benefit of what you've sacrificed to give. And that when we leave here today, we leave with something broken off from you and planted in our hearts that will empower us into obedience. Yes, Lord. And Lord, we thank you for the cup of the new covenant. The promise of the Old Testament was that you would make a new covenant with us. You would, you would write it on our hearts, not on tablets of stone. You would indwell your people. 
There wouldn't be a temple we'd assemble in. We would be the temple of the Holy Spirit. And all of that is possible because you shed your blood that we might be forgiven, that our sins could be washed, those scarlet, they could be made white as snow. Thank you for the blood of Jesus that washes us clean. Thank you, Lord, that that blood was shed that one moment in time for all of history before and after. And for those of us who accept you into our lives and follow you, picking up our own cross, denying ourselves and following you, we have been washed in the blood. And the cup of the new covenant is now our cup too. We receive you now. Do a work in each of our hearts as we gather at the table, remembering what you did and proclaiming your death until you come. In Jesus' name, amen. You come.